Welcome to the Afghanistan Project Podcast. I'm Beth Bailey here with my co-host, Michael Cook. Today, we're excited to bring you another installment of our series focusing on the two-year anniversary of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. We're gonna be taking on a heavy topic today, the mental weight of our withdrawal on our veteran population. Joining us are Hannah Williams, a Navy corpsman and veteran of the Global War on Terror, and Braden Waymont, a retired Army Sergeant with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Both Braden and Hannah are volunteers with evacuation organizations and are still working today to try to get the Afghans that we've left behind back to safe locations or in the U.S. Um, Hannah volunteers with Operation Sacred Promise and Braden volunteers with Task Force Argo. Hannah and Braden, we are so grateful that you took the time to join us. And I think it's going to be a really emotional conversation and it takes a lot to do that in a public forum. So it means a lot that you agreed to do that here with us today. It means a lot that you are sharing this message with people that don't know. So we appreciate being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So to start, can you give us each, um, why don't we start with you, Braden, just because you're at the beginning of the alphabet. I'm going to do it that way. Uh, a little bit of background about your military service and why this issue matters to you. So I joined the Army in August of 2001, um, pre-9-11. I didn't really think it through too much, but I picked chemical weapons specialist. Um, so my first deployment was in the first invasion of Iraq. Uh, we were some of the first to cross the border, go up to Baghdad, um, that whole thing. Um, and as far as interpreters during then, I mean, I was only 18, so I, I thought that they lined up and it was like a nine to five job. They'd come help us, they'd go home. Um, and then about halfway through my deployment, I had uh, a tragic, some people that were helping us, uh, they paid for paid for it with their lives helping us. And that kind of changed during my Iraq uh, tour. Um, and then I stayed in the army um, I re-enlisted a couple of times. I reclassified as a military police officer. Um, and then so as a sergeant, I went to Afghanistan in 2010 to 11. Uh, we had an interpreter there and I knew the importance of an interpreter, you know, through my prior deployment, um, how valuable they were. And I had a unique relationship um, with mine. He lived about 10 feet from where I lived. We slept, you know, in the same quarters every day. Um, me being the, the shift sergeant, um, he was kind of attached to, uh, at my hip. A um, lot of things were going on. He was always there with me. Um, even in the off times, we would watch movies, play Xbox. Uh, we became very good friends. Uh, he was invaluable in the fact that he could read the local nationals as far as, you know, hey, Sergeant Wayman, this guy, something's not right about him. Um, or on the flip side, hey, Sergeant Wayman, I don't, I, I know about him. He, he's no harm to you. Um, and so that deployment was really special, uh, friendship and bonding with him. Um, and I ended up getting medevaced uh, a month before my tour ended. Um, he went home and he, he got his citizenship here in America. So he immigrated to Chicago, got his citizenship, joined our military um, as an intelligence analyst speaking Farsi. Um, and unfortunately, we kind of lost contact uh, throughout the years. I retired, medically retired in December of 2013. Um, he would post pictures on Facebook. I'd like, um, hey, my friend, how you doing? All that kind of stuff. Um, so that was kind of the pre withdrawal days. And so Afghanistan was obviously an important part of your time in the service. Then is that what, is it more, what drew you to the, uh, the work you're doing now? Was it more that you had served in Afghanistan or was it that you had this bond with your interpreter? What was, um, it was both. I, I loved Afghanistan. Um, obviously, I, did, I didn't like the war part of it, but the mountains were incredible. The food was great. The people were very kind. You know, most of them were very kind. 
And then this brotherhood I formed with my interpreter named Fardine, um, it was just a special experience. I mean, um, anyone deployed knows that there's some really bad times, but there's also some, some good times, you know. Um, so having a special place with Afghanistan, uh, really enjoying that deployment, um, not liking how it ended, and then plus a friend for life uh, just drew me to, to really pay attention to what was going on in Afghanistan. That's, I, I hear that story in, you know, echoes of that story in so many people we talk to, but Hannah, you have a really different background and I think it's so important to also talk about what you experienced and how, where you come to the problem set from. So can you tell us about your military background and what you did during your time in service? Sure. Um, so a lot of times when people hear veteran, especially GWAT veteran, uh, global war on terrorism, uh, they assume that I've been over there, so to speak, but I've never been to Afghanistan. And I say that with hesitance because nowadays I would say I go to Afghanistan every day through my phone and through the connections of the people that I have through that link. Um, I served, my first duty station in the Navy was in the U.S. ceremonial, Navy ceremonial guard. And I was in first division there, uh, responsible. We had many responsibilities, but my main responsibility was in Arlington National Cemetery where we performed the funerals. Um, we would do up to six a day, three before lunch and three after lunch. Uh, that's where I met my brother Brown. He was also in first division with me. Uh, I was firing party. He was casket bearer. I did the rendered the 21 gun salute. And together at, in Arlington, it was estimated 2000 funerals before I left there. 2,000 bodies that we had uh, buried and um, escorted the families to their final resting place. That's such a heavy burden, I imagine, to bear. Um, it, it is. It's also a great honor to do something like that and to be there for the families. It was a quiet place. There's these big grand trees, uh, some manicured landscape. I wore white gloves every day to work, so I didn't get dirty. You know, I was under the security of the capital region. Um, it was quite the opposite end of the war for most people and, and the final resting place for some people. And uh, go ahead, I don't wanna interrupt you. Oh no, you're fine. Uh, Working in a place like that during the evacuation, it was like seeing a storm brewing. And all I could think about was all those people that I had buried that were active duty. Some of them we buried together in groups because they died together. It's like the voices of the dead, you know, and that weight and knowing and seeing how it was ending, I I feel like I'm in a state of damage control. Um, that would be a tough place to work. Because I mean, you're, you're seeing the price, right? You're seeing it all right there, the price of the last 20 years. Um, well, right, we talk about moral injury, right? I mean, we just had Will Selber on to talk about moral injury and that's you know, you are told that this is what you're going to do. And then, and then something like this happens, the withdrawal happens and it's everything that you did feels probably like. It, it also feels like a moral obligation as much mm -hmm. as it is an injury. I just feel so obligated to, to try to do something, to be involved and not let it go. And that's why I appreciate this platform so much because it needs to be raised back up to the surface. Um, 
I want to keep it in people's minds to what is happening, what has happened. And, and, and unfortunately, the tragedy of what will happen if we don't do something and change things. I think uh, this might be a good time to talk about, you know, the, the difficulty that uh, you had with you bring up Brother Brown, your Brother Brown. And I know that um, there were some struggles there. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about the mental health cost of of our withdrawal of all of these, the difficulties that have come after the withdrawal. Um, would you want to share his story? Um, yeah. So, so like I said, Brown and I, we buried people together. We worked together in first division. We were very close. I, I had a lot of respect for him for many reasons as a female in the military. He was one of very few that uh, treated me absolutely 100% as an equal, as a shipmate. Um, he never looked at me the wrong way in that light, so to speak. Um, and so very quickly, I found myself feeling safe around him. He was like a battle buddy on shore duty for me. And I, I admired him for that. Um, he was, I remember in Arlington, when we worked together, he had these big bright eyes and you could just see the whole world reflecting back at you. And his biggest smile would come after submerging from uh, cold water. He was all Navy, all sailor. I mean, he was, he had a wildness about him that was, he was fearless and always ready for the next challenge. He, he was excited to get his orders to A school from the guard and go to, to be a corpsman. He got attached to the Marines. Um, he, did all, he, he did all kinds of special operations with the Marines. He could parachute in, he was a scuba diver. He worked with the Raiders. Um, he did multiple deployments to Afghanistan. And I lived through him when he left the guard because I stayed back and continued to work in, in the cemetery, which we called our stone garden because we tended to it every day and we watched it grow. And I, I lost, you know, just like anything growing up with people, you, you lose contact and Facebook, all that wasn't really big back then, but we did reconnect years later and I learned about his service in Afghanistan. Brown, once we reconnected, I could tell he was on a healing journey. He had suffered multiple TBIs, uh, which ultimately led to him getting out of, uh, out of the service in 2015. Um, I know he was trying to heal himself because he would post it publicly. He would post breathing techniques and he would share these healing methods with everyone. He wanted other people to benefit from what he was discovering. Uh, we connected again, and it was like we, we could talk about anything. There was nothing off the table. Quickly became one of my best friends, someone that I could talk to about anything. Therefore, he was the first person that I connected to when I was... Um, being bombarded with requests from, from Afghans, and I've never been there. So let me talk to somebody who has been there, somebody I trust. And that was Brown. So he was the first person I called for help. Um, in a way, I, he, he connected me to uh, Team America almost immediately, and I filled out the form online which was a no response form that wasn't enough for me. So I continued the work in evacuation and aiding those left behind. That first year, the first few months actually was the toughest, the most difficult thing that I have ever been through in my life. Um, witnessing 
the suffering of these people before fall was official. I had already responded to rape, uh, torture, gunshot wounds, and unfortunately experienced my first Muslim funeral. And I left Brown on the sidelines of all that because I felt like he had already served and paid his dues in Afghanistan. And when he talked to me, he would say, I have experienced the dark side of Afghanistan and I'm lucky to have survived. And he would kind of, you know, wish me well and I hope you're successful. Well, after a few months into this, the first new year, I, we reconnected and I asked him how it was going and he asked me how it was going and he, he said, I heard it's getting a lot harder for you guys. It is, it is, and it continues to get harder. Again, uh, I left him out of the details. But I also left him out. Uh, I left him out of my life because I was so busy so busy this work has consumed me all my extra time goes towards this effort it has been mentally and physically exhausting I am really tired I am really tired and I tell people that I am tired in a way that sleep does not bring remedy And so there's this layer of guilt and shame on top of the layer of guilt and shame of leaving our allies behind. Because I was focused on the Afghans and Brown and I, our communication was not as frequent. Just before my birthday and his uh, beginning of summer, we talked and we were talking about Afghanistan and I told him, I told him what was going on and he said he was having a hard time staying positive and that more than ever, he felt the need to stay positive. And he wished we, he wished me well he wished me success in a way that I felt like he was saying goodbye to me for good. And I, it spooked me. So when I went to respond, uh, he was gone. He was off social media. Uh, I couldn't find him on any social media. Uh, I thought maybe he needed peace. Maybe he needed time away from the subject. And all I was was possibly a reminder of that horror uh, that he experienced. So I, uh, I let it go. I knew his wife was uh, still on social media and she Everything seemed fine. Don't ever let it go. Don't ever let it go. If you think someone is not well, and I had my instincts that he was saying goodbye in a way that was unnatural. Uh, just, just as I was preparing for the one year anniversary on August 1st, the one year anniversary of us leaving and the events that surrounded that I had scheduled, you know, with the EVAC coalition and some of the groups, working groups that I was in to, uh, you know, to try to bring to light Afghanistan again. 
on August 1st, uh, the news came across and I had just gotten out of Operation Sacred Promise, uh, our weekly meeting with the Blackhawk Alliance. I had talked about him during that meeting too. Um, I, and the news came across that he was gone and I, I haven't lost an Afghan yet, but I lost my brother. I just remember letting out this scream. <sighs> who, who am I gonna go to now? You know? You always, at least for me anyways, I think very selfish when I lose somebody. I think about what they meant to me, the light that they brought into my life. And he was, he was a very important figure. Now I could count on these many hands how many guys I trusted when I was in the Navy with my life. I know that's a strong statement to say when you're in a, you know, a command of 200 people, but he was one of them. And also in that month, other things happened and I I just went into a dark place. Like I said, it's layer upon layer of guilt and shame, leaving the Afghans behind. And then in this way, I felt like I left my, my brother, my shipmate behind. And I don't think any of this had to be the way it was, you know, I don't, I don't think that necessarily we would be here had things been different. And who's to say, you know, why someone does the things that they do. Uh, I cannot say that he killed himself for the reason of Afghanistan. Or was it the TBI uh, injuries that are so closely related to suicide? But I do know they both have something to do with Afghanistan. You know, it's all related. Mm -hmm. So that was a really hard hit for me. And I think it's a, I think it's a hard hit for all of us because a community without him in it, a veteran community without him in it, it's, it's, it's not the same. It's darker. It's a darker place. I was just telling Will a couple episodes ago, Will Selber, about a young man that I interviewed um, who had served in Afghanistan, who was a very upstanding young man. And when I, I had only interviewed him once, but he made an impact Um and I still recall when I heard that he killed himself and just feeling bereft and I barely knew this person. And so, but I was, it was overwhelming the, the idea that that's the kind of person you want to stay, you want here because they are um, the best that we have and we're not doing enough in some ways. And yeah, TBI is a very difficult uh, injury um, and, and like you say, you can't say why these things happened, but I'm so sorry for that loss. And for the fact that you're, you know, all of this endless work that you and Brayden and other people that we've had on, I mean, you guys are, are putting in dozens and dozens of hours every week to fixing the mistakes that we made and that we aren't talking about. And so veterans feel like they can't talk about Afghanistan and what they did because no one else is talking about it and they're left with this great big burden. Um, it's just, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, every, everything about this journey has been difficult. I'd be lying to you if I said 
you know, sharing the story, even here and now, it is extremely difficult to do. to pause long enough to stop the momentum of working, to stop and reflect on what has happened, to try to find the right words that hold the weight of what is happening. I kind of want to give a disclaimer, you know, to, to people because I think there's more than one reason that it's so difficult. Uh, I worry about my family. I, I worry they'll see this and I'll lose support for what I'm doing. I worry about my teammates that are in this work with me. Uh, when I was in the Navy, you'd just assume get thrown off the ship than to speak negatively or, or bring up dark thoughts because it's a seed of doubt that could infect the whole crew, you know? I don't want to be insensitive to the Afghans and the problems that they're struggling with as I bring up my own pain. Uh, mental health can be taboo in that way, you know, and culture. So uh, this is the first time actually that I'm getting this out because it's such a sad story. It's such a heavy topic. Um, I have been criticized, ignored, ghosted, uh, trying to, you know, and this is after get, being given permission to speak freely. Um, people distance themselves from me. It's just not, it's not a subject that is easily talked about or received. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. I mean, it, unfortunately, it feels like, you know, we all have a story of a, a battle buddy or someone we've served with that has taken their life. And, you know, as a as a military, as a country, we just we know we have to do so much better. Yeah. And there are lots of people trying to do that. I mean, I want to plug like Fight the War Within Foundation uh, has an excellent um, you know, that emerged out of Miranda Briggs lost her husband to suicide and she has created an effort where anybody can sign on and take a course in how to recognize suicidal ideation in someone else. Um, and I would recommend it to anyone, but even, even still, you know, you can have those thoughts that this isn't right, but it's really hard to try to figure out, especially if someone's not on social media, if you can't, there is no, that's a very, very difficult thing to put on your own shoulders like that too. Um, I wish I could give you a hug. I'll give you mm -hmm. a virtual well, one right, right now. That's, it's a lot that is on your plate. And I know Braden too. I mean, you've been dealing with a lot since all of this started as well. I mean, when did you get involved with the withdrawal? Was it, I know that your interpreter was working to get his family out. Is that when you started your work? Yeah, so I believe it was early summer um, when the Taliban started uh, moving from town to town, slowly taking, you know, different villages. Um, the news would briefly maybe cover it, but um, my interpreter, Fardeen, would start messaging me like, hey, are, are you watching this news? And you know, at first it, it wasn't clicking too well. Like, yeah, the Taliban's going to do Taliban things and that sucks. Um, but then his family was having to move from up north in like the Jalalabad region. Um, then he'd have to, you know, another week later, he'd, he'd send me a message saying, hey, they're moving again. You know, they're trying to get to, to, to Kabul. Um, and then when they closed... Bagram Airfield, um, I, I knew that it was it, like, it, it was serious. Um, and he says, hey, you know, my, my family needs to get out. They know who I am because of, of my work with you. Um, they also know that I moved to America. They know my family. I need your help. 
Um, so around August, like the first week of August, I started calling um, every politician I knew, every media outlet I knew, um, saying, you know, like, hey, this this is a big deal. This this is something serious that you, you know, you're in Congress. You should know that this is a big deal. Um, the responses I would get, you know, the, the first person I would reach out to was a state senator. You know, and I was like, I, I desperately need your help. I, you know, something big's going on. There's a lot of lives in danger. And, well, I'm just a state senator. Okay, do you have a number for, you know, an office number? Um, and I would get the, yeah, we're we're following what's going on. Well, we're, we're following. And I was like, all right. And then August, the day started ticking by. And, um, you, you know, the... It, it was coming to an end, you know, and I think everyone in Afghanistan and everyone like us knew like some, something big was going to happen. Um, and I called the news media and they would tell me, yeah, we're following the story. And then one morning I woke up and my friend Fardin said, my family has been taken by the Taliban on their way to H at the airport. They are being held. They're being interrogated. And I don't know what to do. Um, and so I called the breaking news desk and I was like, I can get you on FaceTime right now with some people in Afghanistan. And that was the first time for me, I believe it was about August 12th, um, that I, the news media was like, wait a minute, what? You actually know people in Afghanistan. And we did a kind of a breaking news live update and they would show you know these are this is a checkpoint and that's my family over there you know with zip ties on and they've done nothing wrong they're just trying to get to the airport um i raised a little bit of money emptied the bank account we were able to send them some money and we paid off the taliban and they you know the family went on their way um but that kind of took off is, you know, I was getting three media calls a day saying, wait a minute, what? You know, when I was, I, I would tell the story. Um, but again, like these politicians, I was like, dude, I, I need your help. Well, I don't technically represent your district. And I was like, okay, but these people need help. Well, if they aren't in my district, I can't help them. And I'm like, well, they're Afghan. So of course they're not in your district, you know. I, I still, you were elected for a reason. Let's see what you can do. Um, and one of the news outlet or one of the news stories came and I started, I got an email from someone that put me in touch with a signal group. Um, and then I was like, this is, this is incredible. I'm in this digital Dunkirk as they call it, this underground network of, of volunteers of, you know, people on the ground, people that are veterans, you know, like our government is not caring at all. It's on us. Um, and I would reach out to my active duty friends and I knew the 82nd Airborne and the Marines were at the gate at the airport. And I was like, I, I need some contact information. I need some help. Um, and it seemed like at the same time, my friends, because I had their email passwords um, so did my interpreter, we all, you know, so if they couldn't respond, they would get these emails from the state department that says, Hey, you're cleared, go to H Kaya, go to, go to the airport, show them this email and they'll be let on to be evacuated. And I was like, this is great. You know, wear, wear this or draw this symbol. And I will reach out to people with a, a sign, you know, like a big, smiley face so someone at the gate might know um they would go to the gate they would show the state department emails to the 82nd airborne people and they were like we're dod and this is a state department thing i can't just let you on you know you, you need to leave so they would go back to a safe house and they would email us and say they didn't let us on and i'm like that's ridiculous because state department just told you to go and that would go on every 12 hours um you know all through august 
it was, you know, I had a wall clock that said Kabul time, you know, so when the sun was coming up, it was like, all right, this is the day. This is the day they're going to get it, get out. This is the day that they're going to let them on the gate. Um, and I would do more media interviews saying like, look, people need to take this serious. Um, and then when the Abbey gate explosion happened, uh, that, that was, that was huge for a lot of us. Um, we were getting chatter that they were, um, right after the explosion, I called the media and I said, are you guys paying attention now? You know, now that these Americans are dead, do you care now? Because I've been screaming for a month saying this is important. And then we started getting these signal notifications and, uh, you know, North gates being welded shut. And we we're like, okay, wait a minute. You know, we were told the 31st is when they were shutting down, you know, like, why are they shutting gates down? Um, so within the days after that explosion happened, um, and it's crazy because if it weren't for those people sending me texts or messages, my friends would have been at the gate, you know, because of the State Department's emails saying, hey, you're clear to come on. Um, they would have been there. But there were a group of us that were like, I, I think you should hold back. You know, I, I don't, some, something's weird. Um, so luckily, I told them to stay back. Um and then the explosion happened where all those people died. Um, and then, then getting the word that the North gate is getting welded shut. The South gate, you know, 24 hours is getting shut. And, and I would tell my Afghan friends, like, dude, we, we got till the 31st. I'm 24 seven. I'm with you. Um, but I think it was the 27th or 28th that they started shutting down. And there was that infamous picture of the general as the last person to leave. And we were like, wait a minute. You know, like POTUS said, we got till the 31st and it's the 28th. Why, what's going on? Um, and then started a whole new journey with facilitating safe houses. Um, like, okay, government's done. They're not going to help us. They're, they're checked out. Um, so it's on all of us. And that's when I started linking up with Task Force Argo, Anna. Um, and it was like, all right, these people have biomet. The Taliban has biometric data on, on our friends. They've been allowed on, on bases before. And now the Taliban has our equipment. So we need to start thinking outside the box and, finding safe houses. How are they going to get food without being recognized? Um, we had a cousin that had a leg wound. Like, can they go to this hospital or what hospital is safe? And it was just amazing how everything was being handled on Discord, Signal, um, WhatsApp. It, you know, nothing official was being done. It was all People like us that have no government, like, I just wanted to retire. I wanted to live off the grid on an island. You know, I was done fighting. Um, I did my time, but this was like, all right, you know, this isn't right. Yeah, and it really felt like, at least for me, like, the information that was coming out of the digital Dunkirk chats was so much more accurate than anything else that we were hearing, right? Like it, You could bank on it. Yeah, most for of the sure. Time. And, um, you know, we talked to a lot of Marines and they're saying that, you know, the, the requirements from the state department at the gates were always changing. So that's why, you know, I'm not surprised to hear you say that your guys got turned away. There was plenty of examples of that, of, you know, one minute, this is the correct document. The next minute, uh, no, we don't take that anymore. And it was just constantly changing. And the Marines were just very confused, um, as to what the yeah. game plan was. And I was extremely angry. Like, dude, I served with you before. I know you're at this gate. Like, can you trust me? Um, but it was kind of a short-lived anger because State Department, DOD, uh, you know, the different task force. Like, I understood the, the confusion. It was, it was set up to fail from the beginning. Uh, no one was talking to each other. The left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. 
Um, but yeah, the, the digital Dunkirk chats were definitely accurate. And if it wasn't for them, my friends wouldn't be alive today. Um, mm-hmm. they would. Have so as we start coming today. up on the two year anniversary here, guys, I think we're just curious as to, you know, what keeps you guys still in the fight here two years later? Brayden, did you want to go first? What's that? Did I freeze? Sorry. I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, to, to stay in this fight two years later, um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it has to be uh, to the core, right? Just to hang on this long. Um, I, I don't have support necessarily around me that was one of the hardest parts you know joining the military i come from a very um patriotic community and and uh there was a lot of you know good for you and support um this on the other hand i have not gotten the same reaction unfortunately uh being on the phone with strangers that you met on the internet is breaking big rules. It's not smart. It's very unwise to find yourself in that position. That's the attitude I was getting, uh, much less to support them medically, food drops, getting them to safe houses, all these responsibilities. Uh, it, I was kind of laughed at, you know, it was like I was living in a Truman show. Um, it, I was on my phone, which was also very against my nature to be on my phone so much, um, with people that I had never met in person and sacrificing so much of my own life to help them. Um, I hang on because it's, it's who I am. This is the right thing to do. I'm very patriotic as when it comes to, you know, the responsibilities of America that will always fall on my shoulders. I feel that weight, you know, um, especially being a GWAT veteran. It, to me, feels like unfinished business. Um, and how, how in the world could it end this way? I'm not satisfied with it. And I, I don't think I can see the end in sight right now. But I know I won't stop. I'm very much an endurance fighter. And I just can't let this one go. I just can't let it go. I've, I buried too many people that died in Afghanistan. I joined, I joined a military in defense of a country that I believed would do so much better than it did at the end. Complete shock about that. When I, when I learned that the government was not doing anything, even more so the responsibility once I was connected to them every day this is a human being. And it, you know, to me, it goes so much further than just American, Afghan, ally. These are human beings. And, but, but what roots me to it is definitely my service, the fact that I'm American. Um, I just feel obligated. I feel like if I turn my back to them now, it will be the second time they were abandoned. And I just can't have that on my hands. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't sleep good. Anymore. I love how you said that they were, they're human beings. Like we did give a, a promise. They worked with us. They died with us. They, they helped us, but they're humans and they are trapped in this. I mean, they can't walk to Iran. They can't walk to Pakistan. They can't take a flight to Florida. They're trapped. And it's like, these are, these are great people. They're, they're humans. Um, and we were, we were betrayed, you know, like we both served with honor. We all served with honor and it's, 
it meant a lot. And to have people say, well, couldn't the Afghans have left? Why, why didn't they leave already? Or it's their fault they stayed. Or And it's like, well, we, we told them, like, you help us, we'll help you. And then all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, they broke that promise. And it's like, but, you know, me and Hannah didn't break that promise. You broke that promise. I didn't break anything. Um, and I, I won't stop until I make it right. I think that's such an important thing. You know, Will Selber talked about the narrative that we tell ourselves, you know, the story that we, that we tell about things like this, difficult things uh, that are morally injurious. And I think that um, the story that the people in the evacuation community are making every day is that Americans don't give up on uh, the people that they care about whether it's for the motivation like you, Hannah, for all the people that you buried who were there and you're not going to let that go. Or for you, Brayden, for, you know, the man you fought beside whose family is still there and all the other people who now have come into your network. Um, I, there are so many people. And I, I do think too, that there's also a level of, um, so many Americans didn't have to be touched by this war at all in 20 years. And that makes it really easy for the majority of people to not care. But the people who did touch the war in some way, they do care. They, they are, they remember that these are human beings and you guys both said it. And that's something I say often to try to remind people, Afghans are human beings, just like us, just like us. They just grew up in a different culture and they're still human beings and they don't deserve what's happening to them right now. We did make promises that were broken. And I'm so proud. Every time we sit with somebody, uh, I'm proud that they have kept this going because it is hard. And I've had people, the people who are closest to me have given me grief for sending food packages, for spending my whole days on, you know, various social media apparatuses, talking to Afghans, asking me if in five years, this is going to be worth my time you bet your ass it's going to be worth my time because there are human beings who are involved and they don't deserve any of this. And there are people like you guys who are involved who need to know that there are other people in your corner. So uh, I think this is, it's such an important thing. And I hope that you both just keep, keep knowing that there are other people like you doing this work and Afghans aren't forgotten. And, you know, Hannah, your brother, now his story lives on with everybody who listens to this. We will all remember that story. And I think that's important too, um, sharing those things and remembering that there's a greater toll to the war that we had too, that we haven't yet seen and that will continue. And we need to let people have a space to, to talk about the hard things, um, and find a well, way and to... I... Go ahead. Well, I so I have three kids. Um, I'm married with three kids. And during August and September, um, without sleep or without anything, uh, the toll it took on my family um, was tremendous. They knew I was like a walking zombie. Um, but one time my son came up. And he was like, I, I heard you talking about the Taliban. And I was like, you don't, you don't need to worry about that. And he's like, well, I, I know who they are. Um, and the work you're doing is going to bring them to our house. And I was like, dude, you know, that, that was a huge reflection of like, you know, we did lessons on like, no, the work I'm doing is, is, is not going to put us in danger. Um, but the fact that my kids saw me struggle you know like trying to be a strong father military their hero was like breaking down struggling um that's another reason why i have to keep going to is to show my kids like dude you believe in something you don't stop until you achieve it um and i i thank you for this platform um more people need to know that you know there's people like us every day 24-7, spending our own money, donating plasma, 
um, sending packages to, to human beings. Um, and we can't stop. And I have complete faith in everyone here that they won't. You know, Michael, you, you said something about uh, what, what keeps you going in this. And, and I feel like at this point, I've been on, I've been in contact with these Afghans longer than the people who actually wrote the letter of recommendation and referred them. And I know them in a closer way because we've been through so much together at this point. We're almost two years into it. And that it comes to a point where now it's personal, where it wasn't during the evacuation. I didn't know anyone in Afghanistan, but now I, now it is personal and there's no way that I could dismiss them and look away. Well, we can't thank you guys enough for being here to share those stories. Um, it was really incredible to hear them. Um, most of our listeners know that we usually conclude our episodes with a letter from an Afghan. Um, unfortunately, we are out of letters. And so Michael and I would love it for any Afghans who are listening, for anyone who's a handler who knows that their Afghans would like to, or the Afghans they're helping, they do not like that particular use of language there. Um, the Afghans they're helping if they want to share a story about the things that they've been through, uh, either prior to the withdrawal, uh, during the 20 years of conflict, during the withdrawal period, or during the Taliban's return to power, um, things that they've struggled through, things, anything. Um, we've even had poetry, beautiful poetry uh, on the podcast. So anything that someone wants to share stateside in a third country in you know, Afghanistan, send it to us. The show address where you can send that kind of correspondence is the Afghanistan Project Podcast at gmail.com. Um, once again, Hannah and Braden, thank you guys so much for joining us. I know this was a really emotional episode. Um, we want to thank also every listener who's sharing their time with us and supporting the people of Afghanistan. So Tasha Kaur, and we hope to see you again soon.